Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Yes, I vote because I feel like as an African-American female, like I want my voice to be heard. Um, Conservative values. So I vote very conservative. So I try to vote for candidates that have very conservative viewpoints. Oh, I don't vote anymore now. Um, Just because I don't. um. I vote because it is our right to vote, and I take it seriously. This is San Diego Decides, a podcast by Voice of San Diego. I'm Sarah Libby, and I'm here with my pal, Rai Rivard. Hey, Sarah Libby. Hey. First of all, Rai, how many people from that intro segment do you think actually voted? Probably not the lady who says she doesn't vote. (laughs) Probably not, unless she changed her mind at the last minute. So swayed was she by the deluge of campaign advertisements and the hope and optimism of our current election cycle. Maybe so. I like to think that that's exactly what happened. I wonder, are we going to change our name for like a brief period of time to San Diego Decided? Um, Maybe this is San Diego Decided, this episode. (laughs) The post primary election episode. There you go. You just named it. So what are you thinking, man? I feel like it was a hundred years ago that we did this, the last episode of the podcast, which was previewing this election in which we had 10,000 reporters talk about 10,000 races and issues. And here we are. Knowing things that we did not know then. We know a few things, but I want to talk about a few things that we, not that we don't know, but that we didn't know back then or before Tuesday happened, um, I want to talk about conventional wisdom and our role as journalists (laughs) in perpetuating it. Um, So I went back and found this tweet that, you know, when a a journalist I follow, um, Olivia Nuzzi from the Daily Beast, she tweeted this about a month ago, and she's a national reporter. She was talking about the presidential election mostly and how unpredictable it's been, but I think it it really applies all across the spectrum. And she said, hey, is anyone who's been wrong about literally every aspect of this election available for comment about what will happen in November? <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm sure she found many takers as everybody's been wrong about everything. And I am somebody who I, I don't go make a lot of predictions out in public. That's not really our role, I don't think. But just in my head, I was wrong about almost everything. I was certain that Bernie Sanders was going to win California and win it big time. Which did not happen. It did not happen. I pulled out another quote to kind of emphasize this. And this is from Paul Mitchell, who's a a data guy who analyzes um, California elections. um, And something he wrote a couple weeks before the primary was, one thing that contributes to this phenomenon is an inflated sense of self within the small cadre of political directors, consultants, media, and pollsters who begin their analysis with their own highly informed perceptions and struggle to put themselves into the mindset of real voters. 
How real is that real talk? It's very real. What people don't realize, though, is that, you know, political consultants, journalists, pretty much everybody that's on TV are sitting in like six or seven story office buildings wearing suit and ties and uh, or, you know, pantsuits or not. Yeah, yeah. Or dresses, all kinds of different things. But work clothes, white collar people who aren't, uh, you know, the thousands and thousands of people that show up on the polls and they have this and then they talk amongst themselves uh, and write and text and call amongst themselves. And sometimes when they're wrong, they're wrong. Yeah. And it's just an echo chamber. And the more it gets repeated, the more it becomes just like taken as gospel that something's going to happen or something's not going to happen. And I feel like this last part of Paul Mitchell's quote, struggling to put themselves into the mindset of real voters, is something that we sort of saw play out in a very real way in the city attorney's race. And that's one in which, you know, there were these Two Democratic candidates, uh, Rafael Castellanos and Gil Cabrera, who were just, you know, widely considered to be the two people vying for that second spot on the ballot. And they they were the ones picked by all these tiny Democratic groups and and everyone really as just the two guys. It was going to be the two guys and one of them was going to advance. And that's not what happened. No, it was Mara Elliott, who's the uh, deputy city attorney. And you didn't really hear much uh, about her in, in our coverage, really, uh, to some extent, and in other coverage and, and in people talking. It was sort of like Castellanos Cabrera. Yeah, absolutely. And so that that struggling to put themselves into the mindset of real voters, I feel like that is what came into play primarily because she had that ballot title, deputy city attorney, and in a contest where people don't really know what the city attorney is or does, that was just baked in. And so there was so much stuff that we we personally and we as media dwelled on, these little endorsements, the money and stuff that just had no relevance, I feel like, in the race, that, that title and her experience as a deputy city attorney was the only thing that mattered. And it's really simple, really. But, you know, we just didn't see it. And it was really kind of interesting um, on Tuesday night going back and forth to some of these uh, election parties downtown. I was at the the gathering of Democrats and to just hear all these people suddenly <laughs> <laughs> seeming like, oh, it makes perfect sense. That Mara Elliott advanced because X, Y, and Z when, you know, an hour ago, it was really unthinkable um, just how quickly they all rationalized it and, and seemed as if this was destined the whole time was really interesting to watch. <laughs> and they'll perhaps have forgotten in, in four or five months that they ever thought it was not inevitable. Right. So one thing that, uh, you know, so I also overheard at one of these parties that was really interesting was sort of the difficult dynamics that some of the candidates might have as they face a lot of these women who did really well in these primary races particularly candidates who are supported by groups like the Lincoln Club that are known for doing some really vicious and aggressive ads against candidates who they're trying to defeat, um, what that might look like in an election in which you have a Donald Trump-Hillary Clinton race at the top of the ticket. Certainly the city attorney's race is, is one where if you know, the male candidate in that race, Robert Hickey, were to suggest in some way that Mara Elliott wasn't qualified when it's largely her 
qualifications that helped get her to this place that no one expected her to be, that would probably be seen as pretty sexist. And then the, the two other city races that are still kind of up in the air until November, you have Barbara Bree and Ray Ellis. Um, probably. Probably. Asterisk. Asterisk. Don't, haven't counted all the provisional and mail-in ballots. Um, and then you have uh, uh, in, in District 9, uh, uh, you have uh, Georgette Gomez and, and Ricardo Flores. Um, and he doesn't have Lincoln Club support. He has chamber support. Um, but, the you know, a similar dynamic could play out there if, if the chamber, which, uh, as we talked about in an earlier episode, has a new political action committee, if they if they become aggressive, um, you know, that could be kind of a similar dynamic sort of, uh, you know, they're both Democrats in D9, but, uh, you know, he probably be considered a bit more conservative than her maybe uh she's sure, in, he's attracting in, conservative support yeah, from and, places and she, like the chamber and she's in you know kind of environmental activist um so you'd have this dynamic where three three races city attorney d1 and, and, and d9 are sort of con- conservative males versus more liberal women and and you know what what does that mean how do you how do you run against uh, those women I mean, in a perfect world, I would think that you make really sharp, nuanced points about specifics. Um, You know, for example, one thing Andy Keats pointed out in his analysis of the city attorney race is that Robert Hickey is likely to play up his experience as a prosecutor. And so not necessarily saying Mara Elliott is unqualified, which would be a pretty weird thing to say, um, but that she doesn't have, you know, a very particular type of experience that he has. I'm not sure how that would go over with people who seem to not know anything about this rate, <laughs> this position in any way. So to to narrowly slice it in that way might be getting into the weeds a little bit more than voters would like. But yeah, she's not doing that thing that you didn't even know that this person exactly. would be doing. Yeah. So speaking of talking to the voters about not knowing, um, we did our segment um, on Election Day, Voices of the Voters, which is just a cool thing to read throughout the day as the returns are coming in. And a lot of people in districts all across the county, Maya Sri Christian went up to North County and heard this. We had um, people in D9, D1, D3, almost universally, the people who spoke to our reporters said, I voted for president. I did not vote for X local race because I don't know anything about it. And it's a little bit of a dagger in the heart of journalists who talk about these races on a podcast. (laughs) Why aren't they? Why aren't they listening? Why aren't they reading? Where are you, friends? (laughs) Come join us. I would love to tell you what a county supervisor does because apparently no one knows. (laughs) Um, But so that was interesting too. And to go back to this, you know, I, th- I thought Bernie Sanders was going to win California in a landslide. I think a big part of this is something that um, Ashley McGlone pointed out in her Voices of the Voters piece. So she was in D1, which is, uh, you know, Carmel Valley, um, the coastal communities, La Jolla. And she made a really great observation, which is there were a lot of people who were willing to talk to her about who they voted for for president. And they had really intense reactions, you know, saying, I definitely don't want Hillary Clinton to get any farther than she's gotten, so I'm voting against her. I really want to make sure Donald Trump doesn't get elected. Those people were not willing to give their names at all. But the people who were really impassioned Bernie Sanders supporters were eager to talk to a reporter about Bernie Sanders and to give their names and stuff. And I feel like that really hits at this perception thing. So I was convinced 
that Bernie had it. And I think it's precisely because his supporters are so vocal. It was just all anecdotal evidence, you know, like I would say something that would get on Twitter that would get picked up by hundreds of Bernie Sanders supporters. Um, You know, a lot of reporters in this office um, got contacted multiple, multiple times by the Sanders campaign because they'd given out their number at some point trying to get information about the campaign. And so just all this anecdotal evidence suggested that that Bernie was really everywhere and that just did not end up being true. A buddy of mine, just sort of average guy said, uh, you know, I'm a Bernie guy. Everybody I knew on Facebook was a Bernie guy. And didn't happen. And he's like, I wonder if it was because, you know, the Facebook algorithm convinced me that the entire world was with me. And and I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. So I think just that's something should people should be aware of is their circle is not necessarily as telling and representative of the rest of the world as you might like to believe. And these these incremental things, like when Bernie, uh, when Senator Sanders went and got in and out, we're like, oh, it's over. It's all over. <laughs> He's got the double-double. It was pretty that's, damning, yeah. <laughs> that's going to be double-digit victory for him. And it wasn't. The, the, the thing that I always go back to, and I, I trot this anecdote out a lot, is that Sharknado, the TV movie, are you familiar with Sharknado? I've heard, I've heard. Sure. So when it first came out, for whatever reason, journalists on Twitter were like obsessed with Sharknado and just Sharknado was trending on Twitter all the time. And, you know, every journalist just couldn't stop talking about Sharknado starring Tara Reid. And then the ratings came out and like 17 people across the country <laughs> watched the movie Sharknado. And so just like the dichotomy between all these members of a certain group are talking about this thing and then literally no one else cares at all. So so Castellanos and Cabrera are basically the Sharknado. They're the Sharknado of this race. Oh man. <laughs> I'm sure they're glad to know that. So let's talk about the Union Tribune mm-hmm. and the endorsements that they made in this primary. They turned a lot of heads for some of the picks that they made, and Matt Hall uh, came on the VOSD podcast to sort of talk about their process um, and why they were making some of these surprising picks, uh, notably of Barbara Bree for City Council District 1, and their reasoning on that one was, I think, as surprising as the endorsement itself, which involved you know, her calling them back right away and Ray Ellis maybe not calling them back right away. Something like that. About some claims they made and and who more quickly uh, apologized for for saying something errant during uh, an editorial board meeting with the UT. So, you know, Brie is doing well, as far as we know, is still counting votes, but uh, she's, you know, ahead, but probably this thing's going to go to November. So it's going to be Brie and Ellis again. Um, So point UT. There you go. And of course, their endorsements, they're not predictions, but, you know, they're right. a, a very powerful institution, perhaps, in our community. And so, you know, you'd think we, we should at least see how they, you know, how many people use them as a real voter's guide. Um, so point. Also, yeah, point UT. Yeah. Can I just say, um, so as a, a nonprofit uh, group, we are not allowed to make endorsements um, at Voice of San Diego. And so I don't want to say that I'm living vicariously through the UT because I actually think making endorsements sounds like a a true nightmare 
Yeah, I worked. I worked at a newspaper that did make endorsements, and and it was a fraud experience. I mean, you know, it, it's something. It's tradition, but it it can also be pretty fraught because they blame you. You're a reporter, and it's really been your editors that are making these decisions. Absolutely, and I and I do think the the traditional newspaper editorial board there is a lot of value in endorsements for those types of places. I'm just personally glad that <laughs> I don't have to make those choices and explain them and defend them to readers. So. And if you trust this institution, you know, it's a really good way for people who don't know what a county supervisor is to say, oh, you know, these guys uh, and gals that I read every day have, you know, talked to these people, covered them for years and told me this is a good choice to make. And if you agree with it, that's a that's a good way to make a decision without having to decide. For sure. But let's talk about who they who they endorsed. They they endorsed. um uh, some good ones. They got uh, uh, some good picks that won. Uh, Faulkner. He, boy, did he win. He won. Uh, Mark Kersey, city councilman. He won. Uh, Scott Sherman, city councilman, incumbent as well. Uh, he won. Um, and uh, and they also picked uh, Chris Ward um, in D3, the, the race to replace uh, Todd Gloria uh, on the city council. He won outright as well. Um, some not so well, though. Uh, they picked um, Gil Cabrera in the city attorney race. He did, right. did not win. Um, they picked Sarah Saez in the D9 race. That was a surprising one. Because she was probably, could have been considered the most liberal candidate in that uh, race at labor endorsements um, and, and did not... Uh, did not win, but had the endorsement of the typically staunch, that's a word that they use before conservative, staunchly conservative. That's a great word, staunch. Uh, typically staunchly conservative Union Tribune editorial board. They endorsed Kristen Gaspar, I believe. Yes. Um, for D3 of the county supervisor's race. That was a, a three-way race and kind of some conflicting endorsements for the two Republicans, Sam Abed, uh, the Escondido mayor, I think got the Republican Party support and Kristen Gaspar got some other uh, business groups. And uh, for president, they they picked Hillary Clinton. Uh, mm -hmm. They endorsed her. And then they also picked um, our dearly departed Ronald Reagan. That's right. They encouraged people to write in Ronald Reagan instead of voting for Donald Trump. Um I believe that's a bit of a stunt or a cop-out, or there are many ways to describe it. They seem to kind of revel after they got a little bit of heat for this in the fact that it was getting a lot of attention. I don't know if that's a great way to measure <laughs> how great something is. And there's, you know, there are still, at least on the ballot in California, you know, John Kasich was still on the ballot and still got a, a pretty good number of votes, actually. Right. And and what interested me is that there are still uh, conservatives in the world um, who are alive um, who would make good presidents. And if the point was to select a, if the point was to select a, a real conservative rather than uh, Donald Trump, who's been sort of back and forth on, on pretty much any issue you could name, there are living conservatives who, who could have been named as as their pick for president rather than one who not only is not among the living, but when voted for uh, doesn't get reported um, in the election results. So you don't really know. Right. So their whole point was, let's make a statement right. by, by rejecting Donald Trump and instead embracing Ronald Reagan. But it actually would not make that statement because they wouldn't count at all. Right, it's it's uh, voting for for somebody who's who's not alive, and and that's just it. It, it sort of blew my mind. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, but the UT's kind of trepidation at uh, at Donald Trump obviously is something that's shared by a lot of people. One thing that's been really interesting um, for me to watch somebody who came from covering D.C. and national politics and making this leap to San Diego, which is usually um, sleepy. You know, I made the point uh for all these journalists parachuting in to cover California. Um, just so you know, San Diego is actually the largest city, uh, the second largest city in California. Most people assume it's it's San Francisco or San Jose, and they make that mistake a lot. Um, and it's still largely L.A. and San Francisco uh, that you hear about when all these national reporters came to cover California, which was suddenly important. Um, but the way in which San Diego has become kind of like the hotbed of attention in this race um, because there are a lot of San Diego people who have endorsed Donald Trump. Um, Prominently, Duncan Hunter was the first um, member of Congress to come out and endorse him. Uh, Daryl Issa now supports him. At the state level, uh, Joel Anderson, a senator from East County, got a lot of attention um, during the primary as a a Trump supporter. And he even um, went on NPR on Tuesday to sort of explain some of his support for Trump and particularly his comments about a judge who is also in San Diego, who, you know, Trump has said should be disqualified from the Trump University fraud case because of his Mexican heritage. And so Joel Anderson kind of in a roundabout way, kind of tacitly approved of of these Trump comments. Uh, so let's listen to that. You know, the press can say that he's a racist. They can do all the things that they want to do. But we're tired of being lied to by the press. And we want we we think there's a better future for our children and we're willing to fight for it. I mean, there's there's so much more going on than this nonsense about a judge. I mean, look, he deserves a fair trial like every American deserves a fair trial. Certainly Donald Trump deserves a fair trial in this civil suit about his the Trump University. But Republican Party leaders, including Speaker Paul Ryan, including Senate Leader Mitch McConnell, all push back on him for saying that a judge cannot be fair in a case because he is of Mexican descent. Or adding to that, a Muslim might not also be able to be fair if it involves Muslims. Is that not the definition of racism? presuming their race or ethnicity or religion overrides everything. You know what? I, I can't speak for Donald Trump on that. I, you know, I, I, didn't, I don't know the full story of all that, but I, every American deserves a fair trial. And if somebody's been influenced uh, and they're not listening with fair ears, well, that's a problem. You know, I, I'm really not interested in an ambush uh, interview. And actually, a lot of news in the presidential race has come from San Diego. I mean, uh, Hillary Clinton's speech, uh, anti-Trump foreign policy speech was here. Trump's comments about the the judge um, were made here and and have kind of reverberated in the race and sort of this week sort of threatened to undermine uh, at least some of his support in the Republican Party. Yeah. And so if you contrast all of that, all of this San Diego kind of chaos, um, Hillary Clinton Speaking in San Diego against Donald Trump, um, Donald Trump having a lot of prominent surrogates in San Diego. And then you look at what happened Tuesday night, and that is Kevin Faulkner um, winning by such a big margin that he doesn't have to run again in November. And you just compare and contrast the two. It's really a pretty jarring 
uh, dichotomy. You know, Kevin Faulkner, somebody who had campaign ads in Spanish, um, who declined to endorse uh, Donald Trump himself. And so um, it's really interesting to see which way the party will go. You have people like Joel Anderson and Duncan Hunter saying, um, you know, Trump is really speaking to our issues. And then you have the Kevin Faulkner Republicans who say, like, I essentially want no part of this. You know, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is probably in the Faulkner camp. He said, I'm voting for John Kasich, who's no longer in the race. Um, but alive. But alive. Indeed alive. Yeah. Um, and uh, hopefully eating a delicious sandwich at a diner somewhere. It's too bad that the campaign didn't make it out here. He could have really enjoyed in and out I believe. I would have loved to see him eat his way <laughs> through San Diego and California. It would have been really magical for me. Um. So, yeah, I think this is only going to be something that gets starker and starker as the campaign goes on. Um, the ways in which people fall into these different camps of, yes, I'm with Trump and all these, you know, shocking things that he's saying I'm I'm either on board with or I'm going to kind of dance around and not outright denounce. And these people who, who are willing to say, no, uh, he doesn't speak for me and I don't sign on to what he's saying. So in a week of things, what is our favorite things? So mine kind of follows this theme of this this split among people in a same party, members of the same party. So my favorite thing this week was a, a story from Politico magazine. Um, you know, I used to work at Politico, but the magazine was not around when I was there. And I think it's a really um, awesome product that they've started. Every time I read a story from Politico magazine, it's just like brilliantly written and really, really interesting and a good contrast to like the really short incremental news that the main Politico website does. So I'm going to read the lead to this story. It says, it was summer and a major U.S. political party had just chosen an inexperienced, unqualified, loudish, wealthy outsider with ambiguous party loyalties to be its presidential nominee. Some party luminaries thought he would help them win the general election, but many of the faithful were furious and mystified. How could their party compromise its ideals to such a degree? Do you know who this story is about and the party in question? Is it Teddy Roosevelt? It is not. It goes back much further. It's about President Zachary Taylor, our 12th president, and the Whig Party. So, um, as you know, I'm a big presidential history nerd. I did not need to click on this link to know immediately <laughs> who this story and the party was about when Politico tweeted it. So, yeah, there's a lot of um, similarities there, and it's a really good read. So I suggest you check that story out on Politico magazine. That's my favorite thing this week. I have another ancient presidential favorite thing as well. I'm making my way a little bit belatedly, but through the Roosevelt series uh, that Ken Burns did about a year ago, year or two ago. Um, you got it on Netflix now. So if you got Netflix, you can watch it if you haven't already seen it. And it really uh, goes through, uh, Teddy Roosevelt goes through Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, and Eleanor Roosevelt and, and sort of their lives um, as they interla uh, interwove, uh, you know, as Roosevelt's. Um, but also, you know, the country um, transitioning um, from, you know, kind of an agrarian society to an urban uh, society to, you know, at one point when, when FDR became president, a very broke uh society, um, and how, um, 
these men and 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 Eleanor uh, navigated this world and and really changed it, um, and also saved it not only from itself but obviously from Germany and Japan. Um, and uh, it's just it's marvelous, and it's a time when when you can sort of look back at very controversial people um, at the time and see that you know maybe things will work out. I sure hope they do. Presidential history for the win, man. Nerds. I love it. And assuming we still have a country and a city, uh, we'll be back in, in two weeks. Um, and if you like the service and, and want it to be around, uh, please donate at voiceofsandiego.org slash donate. Um, it helps us do this podcast and all of the reporting and thinking and telling you what a county supervisor is, among other things. Mm-hmm.